This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Craig, we got an email. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. Sound the alarms. <laughs> We've gotten an email. Uh-oh. Email alert. Yeah. We got an email um, about our podcast. Uh, it's Overdue Podcast. It's a book. It's a pot. Mm. Ooh, that was pretty good. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And we got an email, despite our terrible openings. Um, Hardy wrote in, and he says... And he just listened to our episode on Prisoner of the Ant People. Uh, and he, we were wondering about possible continuity among the CYOA books. Yes, so he because it. we ran to our boy Flipto. Um, we were ostensibly, I think, battling the evil power master, even though I'm not sure we ever ran into it. Never. Or like maybe we did and he was just disguised as somebody the whole time and we didn't figure it out. It's anybody's guess. As it turns out, Hardy says, there are some instances of characters reappearing in latter books. For instance, in War with the Evil Power Master, not only is the titular character returning from Prisoner of the Ant People, but it also reunites you with Flipto. Oh my goodness gracious. Oh my. Oh my goodness. Great. We might need to read that book because I need more Flipto. But this isn't the first case of recurring characters. In fact, the seventh book, Third Planet from Altair, introduced Dr. Nera Vivaldi, who would reappear in both Survival at Sea and Hyperspace. Incidentally, Hyperspace is by far the weirdest CYOA book. Okay. <laughs> Have you read all of them? Because I'm gonna need to I'm gonna need you to cite your work. Here. Hardy goes on, it's a metafictional romp through parallel dimensions where you can have the character play a choose your own adventure and you can meet the author, Edward Packard. Wow. Book seven is pretty early to be getting so meta. Yeah. I think. Because they did like a hundred and something of those. Oh, no, no. Hyperspace is later. The seventh book is Third Planet from Altair. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So that's... That's that my favorite <laughs> Joseph Gordon-Levitt TV show. I hate it when my brain just doesn't move fast enough to say the dumb thing that you end up saying. <laughs> that's what I'm here for, man. Because... Because then it may, I laugh at it, usually. Uh-huh. Yeah, idiot. And I'm like sad that I didn't get to say it. And that's... <laughs> and also a little because you laughed at it. It's always. So each week, uh, one of us talks about a book. And the other one also talks about it, but they didn't necessarily read it. So this week, we are reading where I read The Magician's. The Magician? The Magicians. By Lev Grossman. By Lev Grossman. Thanks for the alley-oop there. Full name, Leviathan (laughs) Grossman. (laughs) Levi Strauss, Pantsman Grossman. Mm -hmm. Uh, So tell me more about this this dude, or do you want me to tell you about this dude? Why did you read this book? Let's start there, I guess. Well, it is one of our Patreon books, so we'll talk about this a little bit more at the end of the show. Uh, I believe this book was suggested to us. By a listener. I believe it's Melissa. That's who it was. Great. I figured cool. it out. Hey, Melissa, we're reading your book. Hey, You're welcome. We're reading your book. Um, I hope we don't ruin it for you. <laughs> oh, no. That's, that's, that's our MO, honestly. Uh, so, yeah, if you uh, follow up on our Patreon project, you can suggest books that we bump to the top of the list as we are able. So, let's talk about this book written by a guy named Lev Grossman, uh, who's born in 1969, The Summer of Love. Right. And he though he would have been conceived well before like I guess in the autumn of <laughs> in the autumn. of mutual respect <laughs> or something like I don't like what comes before love the fall of flirting. Yeah, there you go. Um he is he's had a long long storied career as a critic and writer for Time magazine among a bunch of other places. 
Yeah, uh, uh, New York Times, Wired, Salon.com, Lingua Franca, Entertainment Weekly, Time Out, New York, The Wall Street Journal, and The Village Voice. Yeah. Um, he's also a member of the board of directors of the National Book Critics Circle. Yes. And um, the chair of the Fiction Awards panel. So, yeah. Gets around. He also, um, Craig, this is relevant to our non book and podcast interests, but he's also dabbled a little in technology and video game journalism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, he covered the Nintendo Wii back when that was the new hotness, like yes. 10 years ago or something. Uh-huh. Um, and he's interviewed Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, among many others. He wrote the and, uh, Person yeah. of the Year on Mark Zuckerberg, which was in 2010. Seems yeah. a little late for Person of the Year. I, anything else would be a little early, I think. Yeah, I, like I you suppose. can't say person of the year in 2005. Like, oh, look at this guy in his <laughs> flip flops who made a fun college web page. Yeah, not yeah, that's true. All right, good point. Um, um, he has written a bunch of other books, including uh, the all of the magician series. This is the first of three books. Published a book called Codex. Before that, his first book, Warp, was published in 1997. Uh huh. And apparently it wasn't great. Yeah. He wrote a blog post called A Requiem for My First Novel, uh, <laughs> where he cops to it being pretty first novel y. Um, you know, is about a 20 something in his lost years. And he says, My added twist was that my characters would do even less than those characters in the other such novels did and have even less fun doing it. That's what I yeah. brought to the table. There, there's a lot of, I guess, self-awareness about his uh, his not awesome first book. He says uh, he did he did in response to negative customer reviews write fake reviews on Amazon using fake names. Yep, which he wrote about in an article for Salon.com called uh, "Terrors of the Amazon." And then um, in a piece for the New York Times in 2014, he says, I wrote fiction for 17 years before I found out I was a fantasy novelist. Mm -hmm. Up till then, I always thought I was going to write literary fiction like Jonathan Franzen or Zadie Smith or uh, Jhumpa Lahiri. I did look up how to pronounce that before and I just totally spaced. But I thought wrong. (laughs) (laughs) He he closes that earlier blog post by saying, uh, before you read it, Ask yourself this simple question. Have I read Moby Dick? Have I read Madame Bovary, Mrs. Dalloway? Because those books are much, much better than Warp. If you haven't, yeah. I'd read those first. So you know how when you say to like a person who's singing really annoyingly, you, you ask them who sings that song? And then they say who sings it, and then you say, let's keep it that way. <laughs> I think we you should be able to invent a version of that for someone who's writing a bad novel. <laughs> sure, I think that's true. Uh, I also found it interesting. His, I want to come back to the subject of Amazon reviews. He's written about that elsewhere, but quickly, I want to mention that his his twin brother, who's also written a book or two, is a game designer. Andrew, okay, he has contributed to some quality games, including Deus Ex and Dishonored. Um, kind of like you know, choose your path through these obstacles kind of games. Mm-hmm. Um, that guy also worked on Jurassic Park Trespasser, and <laughs> which is arguably one of the worst games I've ever had the witness of watching you play. It's also like such an inside joke. Like it's the it's, it's like us and like maybe three or four of our friends from college yeah. remember playing Jurassic Park Tres- Trespasser. It was a weird like early PC first person shooter game. And it's just like, there are so many bad design decisions. Like your arm flopped around like a wet noodle in front of you. Your, and your health to, to figure on, out your health. He, yeah. You looked at a heart tattoo that was on your boob <laughs> and it would like fill up or something as you got hurt more. And there's nothing I want more after watching Jurassic Park than to see dinosaurs that are modeled like inflatable balloons like yes, bouncing right. around the environment. They float around like a get well balloon at a <laughs> next to a like an appendix patient or something. So what I've learned about the Grossman brothers is that they are capable of creating like high quality work and then also admitting And then also yeah, Jurassic yeah, Park trespass garbage, yeah. <laughs> Um, so he wrote an essay in 2012 for Time Magazine 
called Beyond Good and Awful, uh, Literary Value in the Age of the Amazon Review. Okay. And he went, he kind of sets up this idea that like there are a bunch of one-star reviews for The Great Gatsby on Amazon. And like these different platforms, while they're great for tracking and, and moving all of the books that are coming out every, every day, uh, they make it hard for this like abstract idea of literary value to exist um so yeah, I, just, I mean our podcast has one star reviews you know we've we've been stung by this what the heck i know <laughs> uh so i just kind of want to read this real quick because i think it's interesting his view on how we ascribe value to literature i think is going to play into how we talk about this book so okay sure he says um, personally, I liked Great Gatsby, but if I wanted to make the case that my opinion about it was more valid or significant than those one-star reviews, I'm not sure how I'd go about it. Personally, is about all I have left. It's liberating in some ways, but it's also a difficult thing to admit. The idea of some kind of objectively constant universal literary value is seductive. It feels real. It feels like a stone-cold fact that In Search of Lost Time by Proust is better than A Sure Thing by Snooky. And it may be, <laughs> Snooky definitely has more one-star reviews on Amazon, but if literary value is real, no one seems to be able to locate it or define it very well. We're increasingly adrift in a gray void of aesthetic relativism. Short of resurrecting and solving aesthetics, the least we should do is consider to mo- consider moving beyond doing this sucks-slash-rocks debate a million times a day on the internet and talk more about what it means to say that a book sucks, even when it totally obviously does. Mm-hmm. I just found that interesting. I know that you, as a critic in a different field or as a reviewer in a different field, often have strong responses to how people even talk about the notion of criticism and and what it means. And and we've we do this weird dance where we're like trying to maintain our layperson approach, even as I don't we... think we have to try super hard. <laughs> no. I think it comes that's, pretty natural, honestly. No, that's true. But I, I, I do think, like, you know, we've been doing this show for too long, maybe. Not long enough. No, oh, we're not. Depending on which reviews you read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I think it's, you know, trying to come at it fresh every time is something that we, I think we actively have to make the choice to do. But I don't know. Does that, does anything that he's saying there kind of jive with any of your experience yeah, I mean, I, I I get what he's saying, and I think that's a very sweet idea. But like, I don't think you can have that discussion in 140 characters, so it's probably not going to happen. Like, it's even when people are reading reviews and like judging what a review means. Sure, some people read just the negative stuff. Some people read just the positive stuff. And I'm not even saying like reading different reviews. I'm saying in a review that a person writes. Yeah, sure. Like for 10 people who read it, you might get 10 different perspectives. You you might get like people who come away thinking it was positive, people coming away thinking it was negative, you're people right, you're who right. form that opinion before they even jump down into the comment section to yell at you about being a shill or not <laughs> chilly enough. And it's funny he he actually speaks to that about books he Earlier in the article, he mentions, he's like, before this part of the internet age, uh, it was way easier to ignore the fact that everyone was experiencing everything subjectively. <laughs> like, there was there was no written record of all of these different opinions. Yeah, they didn't all have a platform to yell at you about it, like, yeah. easily. Yeah, and, and so I, I don't want to advocate for, like, and I don't think he's explicitly advocating for a, like, time you know it was better before but more a like okay but what do we do now yeah no certainly i can't say it's if it's better or worse to have audiences and and creators a little closer to each other and yeah i don't know it, it's i know personally as, as somebody who is reviewing like things with apple logos on them pretty regularly sure um i know what it what it's like for someone with for like people with very strong opinions to come along and have an opinion on your opinion or like the thing that you've made it's yeah it's like a couple levels deep on the criticism totem pole like i'm criticizing <laughs> the thing and they're criticizing my criticism of the thing it gets it gets confusing fast is what i'm saying sure yeah all right so he's i what i i say that because this book um 
I want to get into the type of book that it is in a little bit with another email that we've gotten, but mm-hmm. it is a it is very aware of reading and the role that fantasy and escapism and books like that can can play in a person's life. Sure. Uh and so I just it, his work as a critic and and study of literature and consumer of literature certainly factors into where the where the heck this book is coming from um okay so it is it is an urban fantasy novel andrew tell me what you mean by urban fantasy does that does that just mean like modern fantasy like a kid in a city like a kid in king arthur's court (laughs) well that's a good example uh narnia is ostensibly an urban fantasy it's a not in the same way that we use the term now um but we got an how do email. we use the term now we we use it now to really describe like contemporary settings that have some real world elements that also have supernatural stuff in them okay so cool. like buffy's not a bad example um no. i think we we talked about it a little bit with shadow shaper like a month or so or so ago um but he, uh, I think Lev Grossman has cited Highlander as a good example of urban fantasy. Which, sure. sure. Okay. Okay. Uh, we actually got an email <laughs> from listener Alex a couple weeks back that I've just kind of been like poking at every once in a while and trying to figure out how to respond. And then this episode happened. So I just kind of want to read it. Um, I've been listening to you all since you were featured on Two Bossy Dames newsletter. So I wanted to say that because if listeners aren't subscribed to that, they should be. Uh, I just got to the episode where you talk about high versus low fantasy with the borrowers. I wanted to throw in another term that's probably more descriptive when it comes to the fantasy, uh, comes to fantasy on the scale from Harry Potter to Game of Thrones, which is urban fantasy. It's what I was familiar with as a fantasy work that takes place in a modern world that is remarkably similar to our own, save the fantastical elements in the work. I like the term better because it doesn't sound so good versus bad, vis-a-vis high-low. Sure, Um, yeah, high and low do have connotations, don't they? Yes. Um, But I figured you might enjoy the term if you have a book coming up which fits in this category, which it does. Um, I guess my my question is, like, who does it need to be contemporary to? Sure. Because like you were talking about Narnia, like is that urban fantasy? Because it was contemporary, like at the time, and I think maybe the borrowers may have been too. But um, yeah, reading that now, it doesn't have the same. It might not have the same effect, and I, and I imagine that urban fantasy would not have been a term anyone used fifty years ago. Yeah, um, sure. I'm just I'm like if we're gonna draw some lines, would we redraw them to include that stuff or? Are we just going to talk about modern fantasy when we talk about urban fantasy? I think we should probably just talk about modern fantasy. Um, I need Narnia is on my list for this show, so we'll get there. I guess you're kind of yeah, you're kind of becoming the the young adult fantasy fiction reader in much the same way that I'm becoming the Victorian romance novel reader. <laughs> yes, certainly um, genres that we're exploring individually. Yeah, I like it. <clears throat> yeah. But there's another, there's an AV Club interview with Grossman uh, where he talks about this term of urban fantasy and he says, I have a pet theory about this, which is that the modern fantasy tradition started out as a response to the mass urbanization of early 20th century. Cars replaced horses, electric light replaced gaslight. Everything, at least in cities, abruptly became crap. A longing for something that was not crap sprang up and expressed itself in the form of fantasy. I think that longing is still very much alive. And and he goes on to talk about both uh, Lewis and Tolkien in World War One and response to World War Two. And um, I think, I yeah, you see this as a and there are plenty of television shows and YA novels that are urban fantasies where it's like, what about your world, but like better what if your world but vampires what if if your world but sorcerers (laughs) uh and that's certainly what this book is it's gotten a lot of acclaim for being like a slightly a a, like adult-ish harry potter uh which i think is accurate i mean sure like if like of course adults read harry potter as well so like let's not yeah, God, too 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 strict a box around but I don't, people. But I don't think there's f bombs in Harry Potter. Last I checked, I don't think so. It may have been better if there had been. Oh my god! 
Yes. Imagine Hagrid just like cussing out Voldemort or something. Well, like Voldemort, they it's they hate him so much that they won't even say his name and he can't like drop a cuss bomb every once in a while. Yeah, I feel like they would have just invented a swear word to say instead of his name. No, I do I do think that made up fantasy swear words are the worst. Yeah. Frack. Oh, that oh, those couple years where like frack was either the coolest or worst thing you had ever heard. No, it was always the worst thing, but it was all about perception. Like some people thought it was a cool That's thing to what say, I'm and saying. so they said it. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about this book, Andrew. Let's talk about the book. Let's talk about the book, The Magicians. The Magicians yeah. by Lev Grossman. Yeah. Who are the magicians? So there are a couple of magicians. They're teens. So building Ooh. on our reputation as the po- number one podcast for teens. Uh, we're going to talk right. about just like we did last week when we talked about the history of the <laughs> modern computer. <laughs> uh, and there are a couple of teens that we're going to meet over the course of this book. There's mm. Quentin Makepeace Coldwater. Uh, <laughs> now, I, I will say I didn't know that his middle name was Makepeace until I checked it online. So that might come from a later book. P-E-A-C-E or P-I-E-C-E? Uh, the first one. Like, okay. Like peace, so make, He's a peacemaker. Yeah. Um, not in this book, but uh, Alice Quinn we'll meet later on. Elliot, Josh, Janet, and Penny. Those are all folks that we will meet over the course of this book. And we meet Quentin first. He's our main character. He is kind of a sad, lonely boy. Like, Aw, poor sad, lonely boy. He's got two real good friends, James and Julia. James is like the alpha boy, and Quentin kind of <laughs> is like follows his lead. Beta boy? Yeah, he's a bit of a beta boy. Uh, he said, see you later, boy. And Julia, he he's in love with Julia, but Julia, of course, likes James. So, like, they've got their little love triangle going on. I've completely lost track of all the nondescript white people names that you've been rattling off at me, so. Yes. So, I... I'm I fairly... had, that happened to me a bit in It, where I was, like, a third of the way through the book before I was sure who everybody was. Yeah, I... I, this book does a better job of that, and I'll also say that I will I will skip over much of it because unfortunately it's not like a big part of the book. But I do I did notice along the way Grossman like the the magic school that they end up going to does have like a lot of teachers and students from other parts of the world, and he okay. tries to call that out along the way. Though of course. All of the protagonists are American white kids. So, yeah, I mean, I think buckle up. It's you could probably argue that Grossman's heart is in the right place. Like when he talked about great novelists who he would want to be like Jonathan Franzen was there. But then also there are two non-white non dudes. Yeah. So, so, yeah. And I and I also uh, will talk about quentin's role in this and it's not that of a traditional hero which i think is pretty is cool in that regard too so quentin is our remind me quentin is our beta boy he's our beta boy okay and james and julia are like normies they go to high school with him it's in they live in brooklyn um and they do this like setup where they're the gifted of the gifted kids. I don't know if we've talked about this on previous shows, Andrew, but did your school have like a program like that? Like yeah, your school did. district. Yeah, I was in it. I was, I was so I was, gifted. Yeah, I was in mine too. And I, such I don't, a special boy. Just oh god. Um, <laughs> did you guys call? Do you guys call it gifted? Um, the one name I can remember is Tag, which is talented, gifted. Um, mm. I think there is. One was called like Alpha or something. Like Ooh, when Alpha Boy. Yeah, because we like I I went to first and second and part of third grade in South Dakota, and then we moved to Ohio. Oh, right? okay. And um, I was in the group in both places, but I think one was Tag and one was Alpha. Sure. Uh, we had we had the enrichment program, and then the gifted program, and then you were just going into other classes. And it now, the the enrichment program does sound like an Orwellian <laughs> reprogramming. <laughs> Or some Class. sort of like Charles Xavier school. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but so the point of that in this book is that James, Julia, and Quentin have like been distilled down into friendship by this system where they were over the years kind of always, you know, together. Um, sure. And they're the, you know, they're the smartest ones. And 
as you're being introduced to these kids, Grossman writes, everybody knew what everybody else was going to say before they said it. Everybody who was going to sleep with anybody had already done it. Julia, pale, freckled, dreamy (laughs) Julia, who played the oboe and knew even more physics than than Quentin did, was never going to sleep with Quentin. (laughs) So you you get a lot of this from just over Quentin's shoulder. Um, Quentin is described as habitually hunched in a vain attempt to brace himself against whatever blow was coming from the heavens and which would logically hit the tall people first. Lordy. Yeah. Uh, He's not quite close to his... He's not very close to his parents. He refers to them as reasonably intact parents. Uh, And then he... We are introduced to this idea that he thinks there should be more to his life. He's not happy. From my understanding, the sci-fi original series adaptation, sci-fi channel, Seafy channel adaptation mm-hmm. of this book, uh, more explicitly diagnoses him with a form of depression. Okay. The book does not, but it would not be hard for anyone who identifies with that or is familiar with, with someone who has been diagnosed with a depression to see some of those uh, symptoms. Well, and of course, in in the fantasy genre, the person who thinks they are destined for more and turn out to be right is kind of a trope also. Yes. You could probably go take it either way. Yeah. Um, So when he's unhappy, his mind wanders to this like fictional universe called Fillory, F-I-L-L-O-R-Y, in case I pronounce it wrong later. Um, And this is like a Narnia-esque series of books by a that were written in the early 20th century this is all in universe um about five kids who discover this magical world that they can travel to each summer through a grandfather clock or a wardrobe or whatever Uh, does it name drop like is it aware of narnia and stuff so this is an interesting fact narnia is like the one that it doesn't explicitly allude to ever And Grossman has said that he originally did mention Narnia by name, but to preserve what Fillory is to these characters, he had to get it out. Um, Okay. He does name check Harry Potter. He name checks Star Trek and Star Wars. Uh, At one point when when they're like creating their own spells for battle, they reference D&D. Like... The, they are all aware of these fictions. It's not a zombie movie where nobody's ever seen a zombie movie. Pre- precisely. Precisely. Okay. Um, and and they kind of make... At times, they're making fun of themselves for it. And at other times, they they recognize that it is part of why they're doing what they're doing. And this book, this book series in particular, promises that when you go into this other land, like there is an attainable happiness that that doesn't exist in the mundane world um, because it, the, the mundane world just never has that. It never has what you need. Okay. Um, there's a, the Quentin has diagnosed himself correctly to say that he never got over these books. They were both a consolation for the fact that Julia would never love him and a major reason why she probably never would. <laughs> that, Jeez. Like, Jeez, kid. Yeah. And everyone that he meets throughout this book, uh, they have all read this series and everyone's heard of it. Um, but he's one of the few people who's kind of like carrying it around in his heart the whole time. So the book begins, he's going to a college interview with like some Princeton alumni guy and he and James walk into this house and the guy's dead, just dead on the ground. All right. (laughs) Which seems like a terrible way to find out if you're going to go to that college. Um, and he meets this like uh, paramedic woman who is he constantly describes as distractedly pretty. So like one of the one of the things to get a hurdle I think I had to get over initially was like how much of a teen boy Quentin is. Yeah, it sounds like he's looking at ladies like a lot. Yeah, and and I think it's done in a way to show you how inexperienced he is and how much action he does not get and does remind it- you. Yeah. Does oh. it ever feel gross or is it just is it just Grossman going for like re- a real feeling like what it really feels like to be a teen boy, even if sometimes teen boys feel like bad people? Yeah, it's mostly the latter. Like when it's when it might be gross, if it's like you didn't need to have him ogle a breast briefly there, it's because 
you're probably supposed to feel that way about Quentin right then. Okay. Um, I don't I I think let's say that. Um this magical paramedic woman that he's never seen before um <laughs> leaves him with a manila envelope that had his name on it and he opens it on his way home being like, "Oh wow, I just watched it. I just saw a dead guy and they just told me to leave. That's bizarre." Uh, he opens it, and it is a manuscript for an unpublished book in this Narnia-esque Fillory series, mm-hmm. which is very intriguing to him. He has, what is that about? Uh, and a like piece of notepaper like flies out of the manuscript, like Feather and Forrest Gump style, uh, <laughs> into a community garden in Brooklyn, and he walks into it, and all of a sudden he is transported to a like college campus in upstate New York where it is magically summer as opposed to crisp fall. Mm -hmm. And he has found himself at the Break Bills College for Magical Pedagogy, Andrew. That's a good name. That's a great name. Uh, (laughs) He runs up against, he runs into this kid named Elliot uh, who's willing to show him around and like smokes some cigarettes while he's doing it and says nice yeah elliot's a cool dude (laughs) and he says if you tell anyone i was smoking i'll banish you to the lowest circle of hell which i hear is almost as bad as brooklyn sick burn yeah so then we get this sequence where he is like exam he enters into this exam and i don't know what you would do in this situation andrew he has stumbled into a magical college that he doesn't really know is a magical college and someone says it's time to take the test now and here's a room with 300 other people and they're all taking the test i guess you just take the test i guess you would take it and just wonder when you're gonna wake up the whole time yes that because i do occasionally have like test dreams that feel so real that it's like this like I think in the dream like this probably is a dream right like there's no way I would be so unprepared for this in real life yeah for real and then you just kind of wait for yourself to wake up <laughs> and maybe you're naked and maybe your mom's there and maybe you know I the answers yeah. I I guess I had a dream once where like my dad's teeth were falling out that's like, supposed no, but to be that about my, money. That my dad died. Oh, that's not. Or, and maybe that my <laughs> teeth were falling out. But so you are going to get money. That's the one dream interpretation thing that I know because I've had that dream and was terrified and had to look it up. That if you lose teeth, you're going to get money because the dream tooth fairy is going to come and give you money. <laughs> I think so. Okay, cool. <laughs> so the test is really weird. Um, over the course of two and a half hours, a lot of people like finish it and then are weeded out. Like clearly, they didn't pass. Uh, he thinks Quentin does. He thinks he saw his friend Julia there, but he's not really sure. Could have just been a girl who looked like her. And he is selected among a small group to actually do a like one-on-one interview, which mostly consists of the dean, Dean Fogg, spelled like <laughs> spelled like Kirk Fogg, two G's. Uh, okay. Dean Kirk Fogg says, do magic. <laughs> like, show us some magic, Quentin. And okay. And Qu- Quentin responds to this, how? He can do some card tricks. He can do what he calls the wandering nickel trick, which is like a like a David Blaney kind of like, I'd had this nickel and now it's in your face kind of trick. Yeah, this seems maybe this like David Copperfield makes the Statue of Liberty disappear stuff does not seem like what they're asking for. Like probably they want you to make a fireball or something. Yeah, so that is what happens. Dean Kirk Fogg grabs Quentin's like hands and starts like moving his fingers almost to like make him do magic with his fingers. And like Quentin's like screaming at him like, what do you want me to do? And then all of a sudden he starts like doing actual magic which involves like summoning a flaming sword out of nowhere and like throwing a bunch of cards up in the air and they all land as a house of cards but every card's a queen like just kind of weird stuff that he has no control over and they're like great welcome to school (laughs) good welcome to wizard school (laughs) what yeah it's pretty nuts so then we get into a part of the novel that is like half Hogwarts half the secret history by Donna Tart. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I, a bunch I, of magic kids who 
murder each other? Well, a little bit. Um, they, he, uh, he like goes to the school and like, of course, they lie to his parents about where he's going. Um, they're like, oh, great. You went to some school for smarties. Uh, he also like dropped out of his last year of high school to do it. So when he goes back home on his first like break to meet James and Julia, uh, they're still in high school and like things aren't great with them because um, that's how it would work. So one of the things that happens is in the midway through his first year, they pull him, they pull Penny, whose real name is William, which you don't find out till late in the book. It's, a, it's like a punk rock dude named Penny. And at more than once, uh, Quentin like looks at Penny and has a feeling of like, are there even punks anymore? Like, what? <laughs> what is your deal? You have a mohawk. <laughs> what? Uh, and Alice, who is shy, but very clearly a very gifted magician, they spend their first year, like, learning to cast spells on this, like, one little marble to, like, change it. Um, halfway through their first year, all three of them are told, we're going to give you a test to make you second years now. Like, you're all good enough to make you second years right away. Okay. So that's how it works. Yeah, that's definitely how it works. And never the college, this is not a Hogwarts situation where the college is like explicitly preparing for a bad guy or anything. It just seems to be kind of happening. Okay. Yeah, I mean like in the Harry Potter world there's this whole other world of magic where everybody needs to go learn magic and then go be magic bankers or something like <laughs> Well, and okay, that's part of part of the the flaws in the system in this world is that you go to this magic college and even when he's signing up, Quentin's like, what do I do? I get like a bachelor's in being a magic guy. Yeah. Like, what do I do? And uh, Dean Fogg's like, well, you can do whatever you want. Later, he meets Alice's parents. Alice's dad has basically gone crazy and all he does is live in his house and transform it into different architecture periods. Okay. All the time. That's all he He's does. He's got a crazy Frank Gehry house sometimes. Sometimes it's like Roman history. It's like all Roman architecture. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's Japanese architecture. Sure. But like he doesn't go out anywhere or do anything. And uh, Alice, who he later develops a relationship with, is really frustrated by this because she's like, they set us out in the world and there isn't an explicit thing for us to do like there is the the magic world of this book does not have a an analogous like quest to there's no like dragons to go fight or anything um so that's that's kind of like looming on the horizon as this why are we doing any of this uh so after they move up into second year penny gets left behind he fails the test and so Alice and Quentin are in this like liminal state where they are now second years, but they are also not quite second years and they're no longer first years. So they kind of exist in their own little world, um, pushes them so together. Wait, were they supposed to be second years or not? I just, I don't get, I guess what, what are we building toward here with all this wizard school stuff? That's a good question. So, <laughs> okay. And I'm going to speed ahead a little bit. I'm going to just let you know that in the next year, they join up with a group called the Physical Kids. Sounds sexy. It is a little sexy. Okay. Uh, sexy cool, teens. Cool cigarette guy, really Elliot. Brand for us. Uh-huh. Cool sexy guy, Elliot, is part of the Physical Kids, as is Janet who is described as as annoying as someone could be while still being your friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and Josh, who is like the heavyset jokester, uh, who's described as his existence is a joke that he just won't stop telling. Um, Jesus, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and these five form a like secret history-esque clique where Janet's into Elliot, but he's gay and and unavailable um but he's also an alcoholic josh is like the runt of the group that doesn't really fit in and alice and uh quentin kind of form a relationship as the younger two of the group 
and mm-hmm. the five of them kind of progress through school together. So that's kind of what that is building to. Um, we don't get any hint of a like big bad or evil or thing to be like accomplished until a third of the way into the book. And this is apparently the scene that inspired the whole book in the first place where uh, Le- Lev Grossman had a dream where like a creature appeared in a classroom and like caught like did something bad to a bunch to a bunch of students like magically and that's why he had to write this book. So I'm going to tell you about this right now. Okay. Are you ready for it? Yes, I'm super ready. I was born ready. You were born ready. You were born yeah. this way. Um <laughs> Uh, it's second year, I believe, when this is happening, and they've the the thing about the physical kids is they like to drink, they like to party. Of course, who doesn't? I love to party. I love partying. I don't think I could party with the physical kids because they're drunk all the time, and so Quentin has like a hangover. He's having trouble with this one class. And he gets called on while he's like half asleep and kind of gets embarrassed. So while the teacher is then like drawing a spell on the board, he casts like a little spell to like make the teacher's podium wobble to like mess up his spell. Good prank. Good prank, right? A plus pranks. All of a sudden, a like small English man in a suit appears out of nowhere. And the entire room freezes. And you can't see his face, which is creepy. And mm. he has like more fingers than he should have, which is How creepy. How many more? Like, it doesn't count them. Like seven fingers? At Six least. Six fingers? I feel like I want, I need to know how many fingers. Uh, God, I, I don't have it in front of me. Let's call it seven or eight fingers. Let's call it seven that or eight That seems like fingers. the weirdest number of fingers yeah. to have. And so he is like inspecting the room while literally everyone's frozen. They're conscious while they're frozen. And this goes on for hours. So that like by the time that they finally are released, uh, like all of their muscles are in terrible pain. Um, Another student manages to break the spell and starts trying to cast something at this creature, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's quickly silenced. And later you find out that she was eaten alive. No, neat. Completely. By what? By the guy in the suit. Oh, no. Yeah. It's too many fingers and he eats people. I do not like this guy so no, far. No, he's a mess. Um, you, don't, you don't know what he is. You don't know why he's there. Uh, the dean gives this speech about how he's clearly an extra-dimensional being, and this is clearly. why we don't do that type of magic. Uh, again, this is setting up the second half of the book, where they do do extra dimensional magic and pursue the the world of uh, fillery and the Narnia books that are actually real. Okay. So they make it through university, basically. The biggest test... I, I, I saw this passage, Andrew, and I knew I needed to tell you about it. Okay. Um... They go to Antarctica in their fourth year. And the reason they do this is because they need to be, like, isolated so that they can focus on how to get better at magic. Okay. Um, It's like a study abroad program. It is like a study abroad program. The way that they get there is by being turned into geese and flying to the South Pole. Okay. Which they don't know that's what's happening when it happens to them, so it's really terrifying. Like, can you imagine just being turned into a goose? Yeah, especially if you got hit by, like, that Solly guy, Solly <laughs> Solberger in his plane. They do not entertain what would happen if any of these kids got hit by a plane while they that's, were a goose. I, I think that's going to be the fourth <laughs> book in the Magician series is the crossover between the Solly Solberger story and the Magicians. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So they go to this outpost (laughs) and there's one teacher there and he like drills them really hard on how to do spells. Um, And he gives them this moment of release after a few months where he's like, okay, today we're all going to be foxes. And they're like, okay, that's kind of weird. We've been turning into animals for a couple weeks now as part of learning to do magic like you do. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. They turn into foxes, and apparently being a fox is awesome. Like, it's really fun. Stuff smells good. Like, they like playing in snow. It sounds like it would be fun. Like, what can foxes do magic? Like, what are you just being a fox to get, like, a different perspective on life? What's I, your... I think the goal is just, like, learning how to turn into a fox, I think. Okay. Learning to turn into a fox is its own reward, I guess. Well, here's why its own reward. Because the foxes start playing this game uh, of, like, pushing around snow and stuff. And then he realizes that they can't... um, This is going to get... This is going to get graphic. They cannot concentrate on the game. Okay. Quentin is smelling Alice, who is oh, also no. a fox. Oh, no. She's and a fox. She All is right. literally... A stone cold fox. A fox. Volpine hormones and instincts were powering up, oh, taking man. over, manhandling, good pun, what was left of his rational human mind this sucks i how much more of this fox sex do we have to talk about how much more of it do you want because i got quotes for days less somehow less than we've already (laughs) talked about it i don't know how much do you want to talk about it let's give me a quote i guess okay uh he locked his teeth in the thick fur of her neck. It didn't seem to hurt her any, or at least not in a way that was easily distinguishable from pleasure. Something crazy and urgent was going on, and there was no way to stop it. Or probably there was, but why would you? Stopping was one of those pointless, life-defeating human impulses for which his merry little fox brain had nothing but contempt. No. Fox sex. Oh, what, does, no. what does the fox say, Andrew? No, 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 no. So this is their. Uh, this is this is literally how these two characters like enter into a relationship. Could they have sex as a fox? Yes, and then they turn back into people later. And she goes later. And she goes, "Are you in love with me?" And he goes, "I don't know." <laughs> and, <laughs> And then they both. I'm so tired of going to weddings where they talk about how they met. It's like, yeah, we. I was a fox, and he looked at me from across the forest, and then our hormones took over, and one thing led to another, and here we are getting married. And like one side is all fox people, and the other side is humans. No. Dance floor gets fraught. Let me tell you that. Lots of fleet foxes at that wedding. I didn't really understand. Uh-huh. Um, not good dance music. So <laughs> uh, they both pass the Antarctica test. They go back to school. Then they embark on a proper human relationship. Um, and they, you know, they get close in, et cetera, et cetera. So after they all leave college, they all graduate. Um, they have so a... So this p- book is not Harry Potter-ish insofar as... Like we're covering many, many years of time here. Obviously. No, it it like it speeds through. Uh, every once in a while, it'll just be like, oh, six months passed, and now third year's over. Um, they have an interlude where they are living in New York City and being very hedonistic magicians. Fun fact, Andrew: if you go to magician college, you graduate, and there's just magician money for you. There's like a slush fund of Ugh. magician bucks. Socialism, like. Bernie Sanders had yeah, it wrong. Yeah, Bernie Sanders went and he got elected <laughs> king of the wizards after he lost the Democratic primary. <laughs> and just started giving out money to people. Yeah. Now, the explanation, of course, is that like magicians been around forever. They've been investing all their money all this time. And so there's just money sitting around so that you can just have it. Mm-hmm. Now, if you were like a 22-year-old magic dude, you'd probably just like... If you're like these kids, you just do a bunch of drugs and get right. Drunk yeah, all the like you go buy magic weed from somebody, <laughs> which seems really dangerous. What magic weed? No, like doing weed or any drug while you could do magic. Yeah, that must be hard. Like, is there are there like is there like a special ring or something you could wear that keeps you from doing magic while you're super high or like I, some kind of magic breathalyzer I don't, test oh, that you that's could take? Smart. 
I would watch an X Men movie where Cyclops got drunk and he and just, just like torched up a place, <laughs> blasted some. Demons. God, that make him more interesting than he normally is. <laughs> Uh, and of course, this hedonistic period does not go well for them. Um, Quentin ruins his relationship with Alice because he gets careless and bored, and he's kind of becoming his unhappy self again because he thought he had purpose at this college, which, as we were talking earlier, kind of doesn't give you anything to do after you graduate. Um, you just go off and do drugs, I guess. And Penny arrives, the maligned punk mohawk kid. And he says that he has found a way into the fictional world of Fillory that is actually not fictional. Okay, of course. So the rest of the book from there, I kind of want to go back and talk about some of the themes and and the magic system a little bit. So I'll kind of let the book go from here plot-wise because it, yes, the book book world is real. They go there. There are adventures to be had there, etc. At one point, I was... What is the... I, so I guess you're skimming over the part where it gets to a point in the story, right? Like the end part. Yeah, it, it's Instead like of it's just because right now it sounds kind of aimless insofar as some kids go to magic school and then they become magic slackers later <laughs> and blow all their magic money on magic drugs. Well, and here's the that part of the book is simultaneously like fantasy genre fiction where it's like this is how the magic works and these are the stakes of the magic world and here's all the neat hogwarts stuff and also here are teens learning to be adults and they're all like they all have their own like little kernel of sadness that is what drives them to be a good magician but also prevents them from having healthy relationships with any of these other magicians. And that that part seems to share DNA with the version of Grossman that was going to try and write a Saffron 4 novel. Okay. And I don't say that pejoratively. I think that's that's the hidden benefit of the best genre fiction, where like you don't have to go deep on that stuff, but it can be there underneath the like magical adventure. Okay. Um yeah, let's like because we're pushing up against time yeah, anyway. Yeah. So like, yeah. what's the like what's the biggest like what's your favorite thing we haven't talked about, or like what like why should people read this? Cool. Why should people read this book? Uh, it's about getting. It's about a, attaining happiness and it never being satisfactory. So so and, it's and, like and, Mad Men except. <laughs> With like stoned wizards, I guess. sure. <laughs> okay. So when they the whole quest to go to Fillory is this like it's Quentin's ideal universe, like because everywhere he one of the things that he's accused of in the real world, even even the magic real world, um, is always searching for greener pastures. Like Alice accuses him of that, and and. I kind of identify that with that in a way that like growing up, I certainly can look back on friendships and relationships where like when the going got tough, there was like a convenient reason to not get going. Yeah. Like you're just like, Oh, I'm just going to keep growing up instead of like learning how to make this work. Yeah. No, I, I can, I can look at your past relationships and stuff and like, yeah and see that pattern there sure yeah and that that's not a thing that school is really concerned about teaching you to do no Uh, school is like here learn some stuff here like participate in some drinking culture we're gonna pretend not to notice yeah and so magic for quentin is this like oh man this is what i was meant to do and lo and behold magic is like really wonky and requires you, and I mean wonky in the like political, political sense. Political wonk sense. Yeah. yeah, okay. Where you have to memorize, like, yes, there's this part of you that has to be, have magical aptitude, but you also have to like memorize all these complicated incantations and gestures, and you always have to be able to account for what they call circumstances. So like a spell will always be slightly different if the moon's in a different place or if the temperature's different. Well, like, duh. Everything duh. is that. <laughs> There's a, so it, they liken it much more to like calculus and physics where then, you know, just kind of like 
people throwing magic missiles at people. And not like Harry Potter where everything is a magical, whimsical land of talking pictures and <laughs> God, I don't know, like fish people. I haven't read those books in a while. So this book, when they go into Fillory, it is that. It is this like magical land with centaurs and giant bunny rabbits and <laughs> uh, a a a bear that gets drunk named Humbringer, I think is his name. How sure are we that Fillory is a real place and not just like what they see when they're going through withdrawal from all the magic <laughs> wizard drugs that they've been taking? No, it's definitely a real place. There, okay. There's like a whole like way to get there. Um, and the, the thing that it hangs over this from those Fillory stories is one of the children never came back. And that's a thing that Grossman is kind of unpacking with this is like, you know, the end of all those stories and you've read, you've read Narnia. I haven't. Um, but there's like similar to Phantom Tollbooth and other stories. The kids always like go home at the end. Yeah. And they generally seem happy about it because they've like learned a lesson or survived something. Right. Of course. Yes. Uh, and this book is calling like BS on that. This Okay. This this story has characters who go in and either you stay there and things don't go great or you try to do what you thought you were going to do and there's a whole bunch of sacrifices that you were never prepared for. Just basically saying there is no there and back again. There is no there and back again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's it's I think that's a cool take on it. I think the ending is a little messy in terms of like how Quentin tries to integrate back into the real world after all the things that he's lost, he's like, well, I'm just going to turn my back on magic. And then it like, you know that, you know, the ending of the matrix, Andrew, which one, the first one, the, the first, the one, good one where he yeah. like hangs up the phone and then like flies away into the he, sky. Yeah. Yeah. The no, ending of that. this has like a little bit of that. Except if right beforehand Neo had decided he didn't want to be Neo anymore, but then like someone called him and was like, "Hey, be Neo again," and then He's he like, just like hmm. flew away. <laughs> All right, you twisted my arm. You twisted my arm. That's definitely how this book ends with like a well. I guess there's going to be more of these. He's not just going to turn his back on this world. Um, but yeah, that's it's about that like happiness is this th- this type of happiness is not real. So do you get it from magic or did attaining magic just make another thing boring or okay. another thing hurtful? Right. Um, it's like it's finding it's about finding the mundanity in everything <laughs> while also being like a cool story all the way. Yeah. Also there. Also. Uh, so too. as we're winding up, Andrew, I want to ask you a question. OK, Hemi. Because they allude to this in this book. There's there's a throwaway joke about it at the end. What, I love throwaway jokes. What fantasy world would you want to travel into? Hmm. I guess... I guess what? Harry Potter, but like after the whole Voldemort thing <laughs> got cleared up. <laughs> like after they fixed that part. Okay. So before anything else bad and, happened. Well, not before anything else bad happened. Just like after all the bad stuff had happened. Okay. Okay. And where I could just go and like make lamps float and eat weird jelly beans <laughs> and be a kooky <laughs> wizard. You wouldn't want to go to Middle Earth? You don't want to go there? Middle Earth just seems like it seems like a lot of walking. <laughs> Yeah, you need like a fantasy that has cars to get sure. around, or brooms, or something. In in the like, magical not world. all the horses are shadow facts. Let's no, yeah. Uh, is what is it called? Is it the cozy? Hold on. In this book, there's a thing called the cozy horse. Okay, and it's a giant horse who is also basically a couch <laughs> that you ride on. Wait, it's whoa, what? That's a cool couch. Yeah, its whole back is like velvet, and it just like takes you places you could ride on it. Uh, that sounds like a pretty good couch. Yeah. Where can I get that couch? What's the Raymer and Flanagan's I go to? Do you get that one? 
I don't know what the magic name for Raymore and Flanagan's is. Or what's like the the Swedish name for that at IKEA? Oh, I wouldn't say it. I will offend someone, I'm sure. Okay, cool. Good joke. <laughs> Where would you go? What what would you want to do? I don't I think there's like what if I went to what if I went to like the World of Legend of Zelda? Would that be fun? I don't know. It seems like you would just try and go up to people and they would just tell, they would say the same thing to you over and over and over again, <laughs> but and that it would might get maybe yeah. a little boring. Yeah. But I could get like a bunch of cool gadgets. And stuff. I guess it, yeah, it would depend on if you were the hero or if you were just some schmo. Yeah. If because I was... it seems like being a schmo is either like you're going to die or it's going to be boring. Yeah. I don't want to do that. I don't yeah. want to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think there's another one I would want to go to. Okay. But Maybe Super Mario Man. Well, that's that's a good that's a good uh do we know how that works? What, being a Super Mario Man? Like I don't remember the can- like how have we decided does he just live in the Mushroom Kingdom? Does like, he go back early, to New York early, anymore? Early well, there is no there and back again. Early on <laughs> he did go in a pipe from brooklyn to the mushroom kingdom but now i think he just lives there yeah i don't think he lives at peach's castle because he always seems to be running to there from somewhere else (laughs) um depending on the game he and luigi do have like a bachelor pad on the outskirts of the mushroom kingdom but that seems maybe a little like you don't want to see what their life is like between adventures because it's just like quiet desperation (laughs) You and know, Mario the, puts like Mario puts like a mushroom in the fridge with a, in a bag with his name on it, and he comes back and it's eaten. And Luigi is sitting there, and he looks like bigger than he did when he <laughs> left. But he's like, "I didn't, I didn't eat your mushroom, Mario. I don't know what you're talking about." This is horrifying. <laughs> Do you know in the original Mario? All those blocks were supposed to be toads that had turned into blocks. Oh yeah, I knew that by King Koopa. Yeah, so, so you're just like busting them. Destroying people <laughs> with your head? Yeah, busting makes me feel good. Yep, especially when they spit out money. Yeah, Gotta get, get, get those coins. If you want to tell us, you the wanna listener. Want to punch us until coins come out. That's that's many of you do, I think. Uh, <laughs> I think this is a good book. I don't. I can't speak for the TV series. I think I got a little in the weeds discussing the characters, but this was a really fun book. Uh, I was telling you before we started recording, I kind of jammed through this pretty quickly and I don't regret it. Like it was a fun, ironically for a book about how unsatisfying escapism can be. It was pretty good. Escapism. It was actually really good. Escapism. Cool. Good. Uh, funny how that works. So if we did this book a disservice or you want to talk to us about something else, you can hit us up uh, via email as we alluded to earlier at overduepod at gmail.com. Or find us on social media, twitter.com slash overdue pod or facebook.com slash overdue pod. Andrew, folks were a little creeped out by my voice last week. I th- but the, the audience is divided on my radio quote air quote voice. People had reactions that were all over the map. <laughs> That's a fact. Let's say that. So I'm going to try and stick to the letter of the law here. I just want to thank anyone who, uh, all the folks who reached out to us this week, including Anna, Michael, Sean, who worked for .com, did not have the Pointer Sisters, did have James Vanderbeek, uh, Jocko, Liz, who had a Commodore 64, Juan, Kendra, Mark, who also had a TI-83, Grace, who played Chip's Challenge, Carolyn, Mary-Kate, Alexa, uh, Wesley, who finally remembers DOS, Catherine, Katie Bug, Scott, uh, Ellen. Ellen had something called a ZX Spectrum, Andrew, which I've never heard of. But. Yes, I, I have heard of it, but that's pretty much all that I have yeah. done. Uh, Graham, definitely RA. Tysophene, Kate, and her compact Presario 5304. I remember that fondly. Ella, Taylor, Rachel, Camille, and Sophie. Thanks to everyone for writing in. Andrew, if they want to find out more about the show, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there, we have links to Patreon, which is where you can give us some money. We have links to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, RSS. Those are ways you can subscribe to the show. If you subscribe in iTunes, leave us a rating or review. Not one of those one-star ones, like a jerk, but like a good one. <laughs> no, just leave us whatever review that you want, but do make it constructive. But we do like the good ones better than the bad ones. 
Sure. Uh, that helps us rise in the rankings and helps other people find the show, which is our main way of growing. Uh, what else is up there? We have links to Spreaker, our podcast host, HeadGum, our podcast network. Um, we try to keep current with the next couple books we're reading for episode 200 coming up in a couple weeks. I'm going to somehow have finished Infinite Jest. Yeah. To talk about it. Yeah. I'm not super hopeful at this point, but we'll see how it goes. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. And Craig, you're to, to help me do that, you are going to read something else next week. So do you know what that is yet? No clue. All right. So stay tuned for that. Uh, yep. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Thank you for contacting us. We love hearing from you every week. Um, and and we'll, we'll see you next Monday. Until then, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast. As somebody who doesn't know anything about what happened and hasn't done any research or anything, <laughs> like, so the the question, I guess, was that, was like whether he needed to crash in a river. Yeah. When, like, he could have maybe made it back to the runway. And it's like, dude, like, everyone's fine, right? Like... I think everyone lived. All's well that ends well. Like, he... he that plane was totaled anyway. He, yeah, he could have, like, crashed it someplace worse. Like, why don't we... Why don't we cut all Solly Sol's a break? Yeah, we probably should cut him a break. Cut him a break. He's Tom That's Hanks for crying out loud. He was... When he was 12, he got turned into a big man. Yeah, he's had problems. He was big. Yeah, this is this is this is big too. <laughs> we're not. I don't know if we're actually recording yet, but this is big too. When he went up to his Zoltar machine and he's like, "I wish I was old and a pilot." Also, I don't think we're we're. This is the show yet, but if you have this audio, and then there's like an amazing, iconic scene where he does a big dance through TSA security. <laughs> There's no crying on airplanes. Right, and that's how he gets hired into the into the airline. Mm. Mm-hmm. Is because the 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 guy who runs the airline saw him doing that dance and was like, that free spirit is just what we need. Find the friendly skies. Now, Welcome aboard. Now what song do you think he was playing on the <sighs> Um, is there a song about is like that song about flying in a jet plane, don't know when you'll be coming back again, I guess. The first plane song I could think of. It's my favorite part. Or maybe something by Jefferson Airplane. Okay. He did a Jefferson Airplane medley on the, <laughs> on the airport giant keyboard. Yes, I wish to be a pilot. All right. We could. Oh. I wish I was big and old and a pilot.